desire to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. We'll be baptizing after the service tonight, and we'll be meeting with the candidates at 545. Please um, keep that before you. Speaking of candidates, Brother Mike has just filed for a a fifth district of Greenwood as councilman. He'll be running for that position this uh, next uh, term, and I ask you to be praying for him. It uh, has... We all agree there's a need for men in, in uh, various positions in politics that uh, carry biblical concepts and principles with them. And uh, I certainly appreciate the men of our church who have pursued those things, and I appreciate Mike's ambition in this regard. So let me urge you to pray for him as he makes this run for the 5th District Councilman of Greenwood, and that the Lord will give direction there. And um, hope that you will uh, pray too. For our president, I've uh, been somewhat disappointed in recent days. A um, couple of things have very obviously um, disappointed me. And one is that as the president had appointed Jerry Thacker to the uh, Council on AIDS, was the only fundamental voice that was on the whole group of seven. As I mentioned Wednesday night, uh, he's a Bob Jones graduate, as Mike and Maggie are, and he runs a consulting business out of Pennsylvania. He and his wife and believe daughter have AIDS, which uh, she contracted, his wife contracted at the birth of their child. And uh, the fact of the matter is he uh, goes around the country speaking and helping people understand what homosexuality is from a biblical standpoint. And uh, that is to say that it's not a birth matter, it's a choice matter. And uh, he has a website and he talks about compassion and all those things. And then to have uh, the press secretary, Ari Flasher, come out and the president distance himself so far from this guy. Uh, You'll forgive me, but I distance myself from our president for doing such a ridiculous thing. It is sad when the President of the United States doesn't either find out better or his his aides or those who advise the President would not know better that the guy that they just put off is probably the best guy they had on. And uh, the only guy who had a biblical mandate and a biblical concept. And uh, very frankly, it disturbs me greatly about this President. Uh, he's becoming more like a politician than he said he was a statesman. And, uh, and then to make a phone call from St. Louis back to, to Washington when the Right to Life March was going on there, and he's over in St. Louis and wants to make sure he's out of, out of pocket so that he can make a phone call. You'll forgive me, but those were, those were sad days and signals to those of us who had confidence in him that he was a good moral man. I have less confidence in him now than I've ever had, and I'm getting less. Uh, I'm afraid we have another politician in the White House. Maybe he's more moral. Uh, I'm not sure he knows the Lord. I've read a couple of things in the last two weeks when he's praising Allah and everything. I'm beginning to wonder if this guy knows who the God of heaven really is. But you need to pray for the president. Uh, If ever he needed prayers, if he's going to take himself into a war in this country with him, then for the fact now, it's no time to wobble. And it's no time to have wonderment about your relationship with the Heavenly Father. And so I urge you this morning to pray for him and for our country because we don't need someone who wobbles on serious matters as we have now been wobbled on. I hope you'll keep that before you. Romans chapter number 1. And I call your attention to verses 11, 12, and 13 for our time together this morning. Paul's writing to the Christians of the church at Rome, and he writes in verse number 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end, ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both you and me. 
Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, or was hindered, that I might, might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Well, those verses of Scripture, again, today we're looking at Paul's heart. And let me say to you that every person has a heart. And I'm not just talking about that uh, thing inside your chest, that uh, thing that measures four inches by six and has uh, those four chambers in it and works very hard to pump that blood through your body's 60,000 miles of, of um, blood vessels and capillaries and all that. By the way, I was reading this week that for every pound of weight that you pick up, there are in every pound of human fat, in every pound of human fat, there are over 200 miles of new blood capillaries that have to be fed by the heart that pumps all that blood through all of them. Remind you, it already has 60,000 miles. And you just add 200 miles when you get to the point of adding one pound of weight. Now, that ought to be an incentive for us to lose a little. And I'd be the first to tell you I need about a five pounds off. But the fact of the matter is, it has more to do with your heart. That uh, blood pressure you take, it's not really testing your blood, it's checking your heart. Those numbers sometimes roll up, as I saw one yesterday, 140 over 90. Uh, that simply means that the 140 is the measured pressure the heart works against while it's contracting. The lower number, which in this case was a 90, is the pressure the heart works against while it's resting. That lower number got to come down because if that lower number doesn't come down, that means that even while your heart is resting, it's working hard at that rate. And I'm only saying to you that if it continues to do that after a while, when that number on the low side just keeps climbing and it's not getting the rest that it needs, literally you work your heart to death. Now, that's not the heart I'm talking about in chapter number one, and that's not the heart that I'm talking about with Paul the Apostle having or that we're x-raying. But this heart is the core, the center of who you are, that which stores all of your loves, your hates, your likes, your dislikes, the real, I guess you'd call it the storage bin of who you really are. That's what Matthew's gospel speaks about in chapter number 12 and verse number 34, where it says, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. It doesn't mean out of that blood pumping 60,000 miles of blood vessel pumps, four chamber deal. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the center of who you are. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. The heart is just like that this verse is talking about and what we're talking about is just like a computer. You can only get out of that heart what you put into it. It does not create. It simply gives back what you put into it. And it may put it in some working order, but it does only put out what it got in. So whatever's in your heart is the only thing that can come out of your heart. With that said, I read this last week, a, an educational pamphlet that came across my desk. It was telling about a teacher in a school who uh, wanted to see what was on the minds, or as we say, the heart of her students. So she said to her students, she said, here's your assignment. I want you to sit down and write your pastors a letter. And said, just a short note. Don't write a long letter. He can't read all that. So, but just write a short note. And just whatever's on your heart or your mind, you put it in this letter. Let me show you four what they wrote. Dear Pastor, I know that God loves everybody, but he never met my sister. I like that one. Here's the next one. And by the way, these are actual. These are not made up. These are real. Dear Pastor, I'd like to bring my dog to church on Sunday. She's only a mutt, but she is a very good Christian. <laughs> Dear Pastor, 
I would really like to go to heaven someday because I know that my big brother who picks on me surely won't be there. And finally, this one. Dear Pastor, I'm sorry I can't leave more money in the offering plate at church on Sunday, but my father didn't give me a raise in my allowance. Could you give a sermon about raises and allowances? It would make more money for the church. I guess there's a lot of people like for me to speak to their bosses about that matter. You see, what's happened in the case with these children, they'd grown up in a home where in word and attitude and deed, each of these issues in one way or another left an impression upon these folks. You see, they wouldn't have known what they wrote about had there not been something along the way. The same is true for another case. This one I find very interesting. I use this, uh, this very illustration in counseling with families. And I make a very simple point, and that is, you know, husbands don't criticize their wives, and wives don't criticize their husbands in public, anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances. Period. No exceptions and no exclusions, and that's the way the rule is. Period. And I'll tell you why for this illustration. The children begged for a hamster after the usual eager promises that they would take care of it, they would feed it, they would clean its cage. They got it. They named it Danny. Two months later, when mom found herself responsible for cleaning the cage and feeding the creature, she located a prospective new home for Danny. When she told the kids of Danny's new home, she was surprised at how well they took it. One youngster remarked, He's been around here a long time. We'll miss him, but it's okay that he leaves. Another said, well, he's been a little messy and he sleeps a lot, but mom was firm. It's time to take Danny to his new home. She insisted, go get his cage. With one voice in a tearful outrage, the children shouted, Danny, we thought you said daddy. Now you say, mm-hmm. I'm telling you that... Uh, as same as with the other story and the illustration of the children writing things, only what's in the heart can come out the mouth. And so in that home, in that particular case, as I relate that story to people and to families, I say to them, the reason the children felt that way was because there was an atmosphere of that kind of attitude toward the daddy in the home. And if you keep knocking him down and kicking on him and you keep spitting at him and you keep saying all these bad things about him, every kid in the house is going to believe it's true. And when it comes to getting rid of them, they'll be the first one to get in line. So, yeah, I'll get rid of the guy. Let's go get another one. When kids don't understand, that's not how it happens and that's how it's worked. The fact of the matter is, my point is, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And that's true with all phases and facets of life. The thing about it is, when last week we looked at Paul's heart, we saw two things that were in there, and I don't want you to forget them. One, in verse number 11, we saw that Paul says in verse 11, I long to see you. That was Christian affection. Paul had a, a real affection for Christians in general, but especially as it is, he had them for the Roman believers. He had not met them. He had not had any ministry to them. And yet Paul, in his heart, longed to see them. He had an affection for them. I told you then, and I tell you now, that every believer ought to have an affection, a, a Christ-like love and care and concern for every other believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There ought not be any exceptions. When I went out to see this young man who was in jail the other day, the first question I asked him, I said, uh, called him by his name and his name is Paul. I said, Paul, if you died sitting right where you sit, do you know you'd go to heaven? 
are you sure of that? Do you have a Bible basis for this? And he said he believed he would, and he gave me a story about church and baptism and all that, and I, I tried to be more specific with him, and yet he seemed to evade that. So I'm not certain, I'm not confident that this young man knows Jesus Christ as Savior. And I, I believe that's something we need to pray for and, and work toward. But the point is that in, in conversing with him, uh, my heart, first of all, when he said he was and he believed that he was and so forth, I, I immediately felt my heart longing to help him somehow, some way. He, he, if he's a brother in Christ, then my, my heart said, let's do something to help this young man. And I began to then immediately speak to folks who I met and church people who I came in contact with to pray for this young man. That's the least we can do for the moment. And then we'll see what we can do for second stages. But if a person knows Christ as Savior, if you know Christ as Savior, then you're brothers and sisters in Christ, and there ought to be a care and affection that you can extend to them in whatever circumstance and whatever degree you can. Secondly, then Paul says in verse number 11, he says that he wanted to come to see them, he longed to see them, that he might impart unto them some spiritual gift to the end that they may be established. That's not only Christian affection, verse 11, but it's also Christian aim. What he's talking about here is that every believer ought to want to help every other believer make spiritual progress. And that's what Paul's saying here. My spiritual aim is that I can help you to make spiritual progress, that you might have a gift imparted to you. And I say again, Paul was not saying that I carry these gifts in my pocket and, and when I get there I'm going to hand you a gift and you'll have a gift then. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is that he has, as it were, the calling that God has laid upon him to minister God's Word. He has in the context of preaching that, there is the possible prospect of that individual receiving the spiritual helps that they need to live the Christian life successfully. And Paul says those then in turn will help you be established in your Christian faith. So I say to you that every Christian in the New Life Baptist Church and every Christian that we know, we ought to be concerned about them making spiritual progress. Now listen to me. You ought not gloat when somebody you do not particularly care for falls flat on their face. You know, when some preacher falls on his face in sin who you believe to be a believer, it ought not cause you to rejoice. It ought to cause you to weep. It ought to cause you a heartache to think that one of our fellow soldiers has bitten the dust, as it were. You see, there's so much of that that there's this isolationism that this church against that church and this group against that group. I say to you that every person who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is your brother and sister and mine if you and I know Christ, period. And we ought to be interested in their well-being and their spiritual progress. We turn the x-ray machine on one more time and we look to two more places and two more pictures we take of Paul. And they come in verse number 12 to begin with. In verse 12 he says, That is that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. I call this, for lack of a better word, and I'm sure there are many, Christian aid. I like the alliteration so I can remember while I'm preaching. So you not only have a Christian affection and Christian aim, but you have Christian aid. This would be what we call spiritual assistance. And it doesn't mean just helping somebody one way. That's the difference between this and the aim that I just spoke about. You see, the Greek word here for comfort in verse number 12 is a, has a prefix to it, some. And that word is like many prefixes. It has a distinction of what's going to follow in the word. And in this case, the word that begins in the Greek, the prefix to this Greek word for comfort means co or to be party to, party with, to help. And the ideal here is that he is saying, I'm not telling you in some egotistical way that you folks need a lot of help and I've come to help you. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying, I'm going to come to help you because it happens every single time. And far as I'm concerned, I believe Paul believed the same thing. It is a matter of the Christian faith principle. As you help other people, you're helped in return. Spiritually. You help somebody spiritually, I'll assure you that you'll gain spiritual help. I assure you of that. You reach out to anybody. If you start, you can take a Sunday school teacher. And you ask any Sunday school teacher in the New Life Baptist Church, and I believe with all honesty, they'd be honest with you to say this is absolutely the truth. As they begin to study, to teach whoever sits in front of them, they gain so much more spiritual truth themselves. There's never been a pastor who ever entered a pulpit who did any studying and did it on a routine basis that preaching did not help him more than it helped the people who sit out in front of him. You cannot study for the hours that it takes to prepare sermons and then preach them, etc., etc. You cannot do that without the tables being turned and you being the recipient of so much more than you can ever give out. So Paul in verse number 12 is saying this very simply. I want to be a conduit for Christian aid. I want to be the conduit that slides it your way. And the point made is, I know what's going to happen. This thing's going to turn around and come back to me. And that's the word comforted that he uses in verse number 12 that satisfies that very point. I... I know in my own case, and I'm sure it's happened to you. You've gone to visit some Christian in the hospital or in the nursing home, and you went there to be an encouragement to them, to be a blessing to them, and you came away and you said, man, I tell you what, that was refreshing for me. Boy, that did something to my heart. That encouraged me. And that's the way it should work. That's the Christian principle about service and serving. And that's exactly what Paul is dealing with in the context we have right here. Here you have it. Paul in verse number 12 may be assuring these people that he cares about them. But he's also saying to them, you can be a help to me. I, I say this. He wanted them to, to know this, that he fully expected that he was going to get something as surely as he was going to give it. Here's a, a passage of Scripture. It's in First Peter. I would call your attention to it, and for all of us for sure, but especially for those of us who handle the Scriptures, teaching them and studying them and preaching them. I would tell you that in First Peter chapter 5, verses 2, 3, and 4, I think every preacher, pastor, Sunday school teacher, anybody who works with the Scriptures handling the Word of God, ought to be careful about obeying and taking heed to this command. First Peter chapter 5, verse 2, he says, and he's speaking in verse 1, the elders. So the elders were those who were the leaders in the church. In verse number 2, he says, here's the responsibility. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, and not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. The point we'd make in this context would be to say that whether you're a pastor or preacher or a Sunday school teacher or Wednesday night teacher or junior church worker teacher or wherever it is that you handle God's Word, the thing would be in principle the same. Your job is not to get up and make these people think you're smart. Yeah, your job is not to get up and teach things and say things in cute ways so that people think you're a cute teacher. Your job is to feed the flock of God. And that means sometimes putting a vegetable on the plate that they'll say, hey, I don't care for that. And you say, well, it's good for you. You eat it anyway. You see, if we come to church and treat it like a smorgasbord and say, well, Pastor, I want you to know everything I agree with you on, I'm going to put on my plate and I'm going to eat it up and never ask a thing about it. But the things I don't agree with, Pastor, you'll forgive me, but I'm going to throw those in the garbage pail. And you'll forgive me. But that's not the way you're supposed to handle the preaching of God's Word. 
You're supposed to take God's Word into heart and mind and listen to it. And listen to it with your heart. Not the thing that pumps the blood through your body, even though that's where we always point. But the thing is that you're to consider it based on everything you know about the Bible. And you're supposed to study yourself to show yourself approved unto God to make sure that what I'm saying is the absolute unequivocal truth. If, in fact, as you think on it and you study it and you compare it to the standard of the Scriptures, then it ought to be that you embrace it no matter how untasteful it may be. Brother Mike was talking about not liking uh, orange jars. What was? What juice was he talking about? Said, tomato juice. You see, now I happen to like it. Now I guess the reason why is because in the South when we grew up, my mother canned tomato juice and we drank it because really we didn't have a whole lot of other options. You know, today you go into a place and they say, what would you like to drink? You say, oh, I have a choice. When I was growing up, there were no choices. You sat down, this is what you drink, and you drink it. I mean, wasn't, I don't like this, man. I don't care for this. This ain't what I... My folks were the kind of folks that say, then starve. Leave the table. And we left the table on two occasions, but the only two occasions in my life I left the table. I learned if you don't eat it, then, you know. But now I have a choice. My wife would tell you that, and I make them. There are certain things in our house are not allowed. Cheese just happens to be a small portion of them. But anyway, that's a whole sideline point. Here's my point. There may be some things in life you don't particularly care for. But they might be the very thing you need in order to keep you healthy. I would dare say, and I may be dead wrong, but I would dare say that most of the people in this room do not, listen to me, do not drink enough water. You know, the, the minimum requirement is eight glasses today. Let me just ask. Let me take my glasses off. How many of you, honestly now, before the Lord of glory, you say, I absolutely drink eight glasses of water a day. That's a minimum of what they say we ought to have. Anybody? Would the record show that there ain't a single hand in the air? You know what? Did you realize that just drinking water will help your system work better and flush your system and clean your system and make you feel better? I would say I probably drink six a day. That's my guess of what I drink. I go into my office, sit them there and drink them, and then when I'm outside, I, I have a, usually a glass or a thing that I take with me. The fact of the matter is drinking water is a simple, healthy thing that you could do to make you feel better. And I'm saying to you that, that there is a sense in which folks just don't like water. I'd rather have a croak. I'd rather have something sweet. I'd rather have something different. That may be true. But that's not what's best for us necessarily. And that's what's getting at in Peter's case, to, speaking to the elders. He said, the elders, these folks may not always appreciate what you put on the plate. But your choice here is to feed the flock of God, not pacify the flock of God. Don't just say, well, yeah, I like it because he gives us everything we want. That's not necessarily a good pastor. A good pastor is the one who preaches the whole counsel of God, whether I like it or not. Whether it steps on my toes or not. It's whether or not it's God's word, and if it is, I ought to conform to acceptance of it and not rebel against it. There's a second thing. In verse number 3, he says, Neither as being lords over God's heritage. You see, the priority program for anybody who handles the scripture is that you feed the flock, the folks who are in you're over and in charge of those over whom you've been given oversight and you do it with the right motive that's verse number two that's the priority program in verse number three it gives you a potential problem a potential problem is he says i do not want you to be lords over god's heritage but being examples to the flock that's a potential problem. And by the way, I believe that's part of what Paul was dealing with back over there in Romans chapter 1. He did not want to appear as being lording over God's heritage. Now, he was an apostle, and he certainly had certain authority under that position. But the point is, he does not want these people to sense that he's overlording them. 
What he wants them to know is he cares about them and about their spiritual condition. At the same time, when Peter writes this to these elders, he wants these men to know, look, you have been entrusted with this flock. Don't you mishandle your responsibility. You do not lord over God's heritage. And I say to you that that's a great temptation for people in leadership, to lord over people. And I consequently, I believe it was such an issue even in the early church that this verse of Scripture is one of many that allude to this very problem. There's a third thing, notice if you would, and it's that what I call potent promise. In verse 4 he says, When the chief shepherd shall appear, and the ideal is after you followed these directives in verse 1, 2, and 3, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. That's a potent promise for anybody who handles the Scripture, and in this case, I believe, for pastors especially. But the fact is, for anyone who is faithful in handling the Word of God, feeding the flock of God without falling into the potential problem of overlording on God's people, then I believe there's a great promise. Now, I want you to catch something in verse number 5. In verse number 5, he caps all this off that he said to these elders with something that you and I need to get a grip on and part of what Paul is hammering at in chapter 1 of Romans. He says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, and yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and giveth grace to the humble. The point about that is that you submit yourselves one to another. And the ideal, all of you do that. Not just the elders up here and not just the teachers in Sunday school and junior church and those who work in the nursery and those who are in the choir and the pastor and this, but everybody submitting yourselves one to another and you do this with a spirit of humility. And you realize, as Paul, I believe, knew and realized when he wrote to the Romans, he's writing, I'm not trying to tell you that I'm up here and you're down there. This is not a, this is not a clergy, laity kind of issue here. He says, because I'm here with you. We're on this same plane. We're fellow believers. And I'm saying to you, as certainly as I want to be a help to you, I know you're going to be a help to me. And I say to you, that can only happen when there's a sense of humility both ways. There's nobody in this room, including this pastor, who has arrived at all spiritual truth that's revealed in the Holy Scriptures. I doubt that there's anybody in this room who ever will arrive at that point before we go home to meet the Lord. That puts us in a mode where we're in an ever-progressing, an ever-learning, an ever-servant role. And I say to you, as long as we're in that, then we ought to understand that. I'm not better than you. I may be a man who is responsible for teaching, preaching, sharing the Word, but it does not mean that that makes me different than you from the standpoint of what the Lord would have dared do in your life. I call your attention to the phrase where he says, He resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. That's an interesting thing. Boy, as a pastor of the church, the one thing you don't want to have and do not want to be in a position of, it is not a desired position to be in, and that is to be resisted by God Almighty. Man, a guy get up in a pulpit to teach or preach and be resisted of the Lord? Boy, you talk about a bad position. That's a bad position. But by the way, it's a bad position for any believer to be in. And I say to you that it means for all of us, he resisteth the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. So don't get yourself, don't allow yourself, no matter what you're called on to do and what position in ministry, leadership role in your home or your house, your church, wherever, don't allow yourself to get into this mode where it becomes a matter of pride and arrogancy and egotism. Don't do that because that's the fastest way to be resisted of the Lord. I take you to another passage, that this one in Philippians chapter number 3. It's not always easy to maintain that equilibrium. 
you know, to handle the Word of God, to preach to a group of people, stand before them as a Sunday school class and whatever, and yet not lord over them, but to be humble and, and submitting yourselves one to another. But I tell you something, the Apostle Paul did an outstanding job of this. And I called your attention to it, what, what, wrote, what he wrote in Philippians chapter number 3. And I personally believe this is the secret, if there is one. And I would say this ought to be the secret that you'd keep in your mind and heart that you don't get to that point either. Philippians chapter 3 verse 12, he says, Paul writes, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend for that which also I am apprehended for Christ Jesus. What it boils down to and what he's actually saying is, he said, I am not, I have not arrived spiritually. I have not got to a point or a place of perfection, spiritually speaking. I am not fully matured to the point where I can look back and, as it were, look down on anybody. I'm not there. And I am saying to you, and I believe Paul is saying this to all of us, since that's true, then we ought to submit ourselves one to another. We ought to be, as it were, encouragers one to the other. And we ought to be, as Paul writes in his ideal of comforting, we ought to co-encourage. We ought to co-exhort equally, back and forth. I ought to exhort you, but as I exhort you, you ought to exhort me. By the way, I learned, and, and, and I mean this sincerely, I learn and grow by the, the, the discussions that uh, I have with my wife. My wife and I have some, some discussions, and for strange reasons, they always seem to fall when we're getting ready to go to sleep. Worst time in the world, and uh, we'll get to discussing some discussion about a Bible verse or something, and, and, and the next thing you know, and, and uh, sometimes I play the devil's advocate, even though I agree with her, I don't want her to know that. I don't want her to know that, but so I just disagree, you know, and, and we just back and forth, we badger with The fact of the matter is, I grow by that. Because if I've got a strong argument and she picks up on that she can't defend that, then I feel better about what I would say about that. This is the way it is. On the other side, if I kick out something and she punches holes in it real quick, then I know that's not very got, got very good foundation. I need to look at this thing again. My point is, we learn from that. I, it's not on my wife, but, but Scott and Diane and Steve and Erica who email me and the conversations we have. I grow by my discussions with my family and, and the things we talk about and the issues that we discuss. I grow by that. Many of you email me and we talk here at the church and we talk privately and we talk confidentially and we talk openly as, a, as some men get together. And I learn from those conversations and I grow and mature in those. Now listen, to a degree, some degree... As a pastor of any church, when a pastor has that many interchanges with this many people, to a large degree, he is becoming what those kind of contacts are making him to be. And that's why it's important for, for the challenge and the, the conversation and the discussions to go on. And I believe they make people better. I believe they are important in a two-way street of improving people. I am better today at what I do as a pastor because of the contacts I've come in touch with over all the years of the ministry I've had. It's like a bee visiting flowers. I take a little nectar from every single visit in contact, and I am therefore the subtotal of all those contacts in one way or another. It's in essence saying that the pastor and the people of any given church that's right ought to be good for each other. It ought to be a pastor ought to be growing spiritually, and the people ought to be growing spiritually, because there ought to be a two way street. I heard a, a story and when I heard this, I, I asked myself, uh, which am I of these two characters? You listen, and it fits this thing very, very well. Uh, I, I think you can relate to it. It says, a customer in a pet shop uh, was thrilled by the lovely singing of a beautiful canary. 
and that was in a cage sitting over to the side of the counter. And it was strange that this beautiful singing canary was caged together with a horrible looking old bird. When she, this lady who looked at this canary and listened to his sing, she offered the store owner to buy the singing canary. The pet shop owner said, quote, you'll have to take the older bird too. I can't sell them apart. She said, but I don't want that horrible looking old bird. And he said, and she then said, why can't I just pay you for both of them, but just take the canary? And he said, I just can't do that, ma'am. That won't work. The storekeeper kept shaking his head. He said, it just absolutely won't work, lady. There is no further need of discussing it. You've got to take the ugly one with the pretty one. Understand, lady, the pretty bird can't sing a note. The ugly one is a ventriloquist. (laughs) Now, I said to myself, which am I? Am I that beautiful canary that gets up on Sunday morning and, boy, I sing like a bird? And is it the church is this old bird that make it all possible with all the contacts we make and the discussions we have and the growing I've done over the years? Is that the way it is? Or is it the reverse? I'm the old bird and they're the canary that goes out and sings when they leave the services and speaks and shares the truth they've heard and tell people the beauty of Christ and how he's changed their lives. I caught myself saying, I don't really care which I am as long as I'm in the process. I don't care which I am. Make me the beautiful canary and let the other folks speak through me, as it were, influence my life to the point that Christ is honored and glorified and lifted up, or may it be the other. I really don't care. As long as, and as in Paul's case, as long as the Lord Jesus Christ is honored and glorified. I read a story just this last week that you've read often. It's the story in John 4 of our Lord. You remember where he went into the the uh, Samaritan. He said, yeah, I must needs go through Samaria. You remember that story? And as he did, what was interesting about that is that uh, he was wearied on his journey. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For him to be wearied is another evidence that he was truly man as he was truly God. And so the Bible says, John chapter 4, he was wearied of his journey. He stops at a well and his disciples go into town to buy lunch or buy a meal, as the Bible says. And the fact of the matter is, while he was there, the Samaritan woman comes up to the well. They begin to talk. Our Lord begins to talk to this Samaritan woman and really quickly uh, tells her things she's not aware that he knows. One, she has five husbands. The man she's living with is not her husband presently. She's shocked by that and I believe also convicted by that. And so the Bible indicates she leaves and goes into town to tell other people of this man who told her everything that she had did and done, she says. I call the story in chapter number 4. Let me read just a portion of it. John chapter 4, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, to saith unto the men, Verse 29, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ, the anointed one? Verse 30, Then they went out of the city and came unto him, and in the meanwhile his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. What's interesting about that, even our Lord, when he was ministering to this woman, was there because he was wearied and he was tired and hungry. 
disciples go get him something to eat, they come back and between that time, he has ministered himself, as it were, to this Samaritan woman. When they come back and present him with McDonald's, he looks at that and he said, you'll forgive me, but I have meat to eat that you do not know about. You see the caption here? The ideal is the same thing that Paul's talking about. Even with our Lord, he said, as I ministered to her, she ministered to me. I got something out of this transaction. And I personally believe that happens with everybody. I believe there is something in every sharing of truth and a bearer of truth that there is a two-way street, a conduit. And I say to you that that's exactly what Paul is dealing with in chapter number 1. There's a second picture, though, of his heart that I want you to see. Look, if you would, in Romans chapter 1 and look down at verse number 13. He says, not only in verse 12, that I may comfort or be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both you and me. But verse 13, he says, now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purposed to come unto you, but was led hitherto. He says that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Not only the matter of Christian affection and Christian aim and Christian aid, but here I call Christian advancement. And this advancement is really from the standpoint of Paul himself. That is, there is a sense in which he said that I might have some fruit among you. I might have some fruit. It might be a, an obligation and a responsibility that I would carry out that would produce that. He certainly wanted to see these believers at Rome to strengthen his own faith. I don't doubt that. I also believe he wanted to enjoy their fellowship. I'm confident of that. But I also believe there was a third thing, and that was to produce some fruit. Produce fruit. You see, one of the, I think, sad things in Christendom today is this sense in which we get saved. And we honestly somehow think that we just come and sit. Just, you know, you got saved. And you come to church maybe in Sunday school and you listen to the teachers teach and they do a great job. You listen to the preaching, preach, and you accept that. You go home and then you rest in the afternoon. You come back Sunday night, hear more preaching of God's Word. You accept that. You thank the Lord for it and then you leave and go home and then you get up on Monday morning. You go to work and you come home and you do all the things in your household and then Wednesday night you come back, hear more teaching and preaching, whatever the case is. It's just a routine of life. And somewhere in all that mix we forget one small dimensional truth that I think we can't forget. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here, that there is a great need, there is an actuality, a responsibility, that you and I are supposed to be do producing fruit. I mean, this is not just a showboat kind of deal. This is not just a tree out in, a, in an orchard that's supposed to look good. And so, as a Christian, I just look good, you know. I've spread my branches and I have my leaves and people walk by and enjoy my shade and that's just what, that's not what it's about. I can show you the story in the New Testament where there was this fig tree that looked wonderful. But when our Lord got over there and because that fig tree was indicating by the leaves it produced that it already had fruit on it and our Lord got there and there was none, I can remind you he was very disappointed. So much so that the only time I know anything about it, our Lord cursed that tree. And that's what the scriptures say. He cursed that fig tree, and that fig tree withered from the root up and died off completely. What's his point of doing such a thing? Well, I think there's a lot of lessons you get from it. One of them is don't advertise what you don't sell. If you're going to advertise that you're a Christian, then be one. Roots up, not just leaves out. Be a Christian all the way through. But secondly, there is the thing that there's an important principle here of bearing fruit. If we're Christians, the assumption is we will bear fruit. This is the ministry, the duty, the responsibility, the appointment that every believer has. 
John chapter 15 leaves no doubt. John 15 verse 16 says straight up, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained, ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. One way that you produce fruit is, of course, spiritual growth. We're to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe there is a sense in which that's a fruit. I believe that has to happen in order for the, the, the soil of your Christian life to be fertile enough for fruit to grow out of it. You don't get fruit off of stunted fruit trees. It won't work. A fruit tree has to grow in good, fertile soil as it grows healthy and wild and, or, or wisely, and it means it gets being pruned, it has to be cut back. All those things make that tree to produce more. In some sense, the Christian life, some Christians are just growing without pruning. That is, they don't, they don't sit down and judge their lives as we're supposed to do when we come to communion, that we judge ourselves, we look at ourselves and wonder what it is about us that maybe is hindering our fruit production. Why is it that more folks are not becoming more spiritually interested with whom I have my most contact. The people who I talk with on the job or my neighbors or my friends, why is it that they're not getting more spiritually interested? What is it? Is it me? Am I lacking something? Am I not growing spiritually? Am I not maturing? Is my life not reflect a Christ-likeness enough that it would draw people to me, to the Lord Jesus? All this is simply saying that when a person is living the Christ-like life, it ought to have impact on the people around them, and especially as that person is growing spiritually themselves. I, I read this week, this is, I think, an important quote. He, this writer of this book says, quote, The love within a church attracts the world, but the holiness within the church, born out of spiritual growth, convicts the world. And I believe that's true. I believe that's true. And I believe sometimes we forget the simple things that help us grow. Question. Question. Did you read from the Holy Scriptures every day this week? Did you eat food every day this week? Job said, I consider thy word more than my necessary food. Do you feel that way? Would you miss a meal or would you miss reading your Bible? Because you didn't have time. I didn't have time. I had to get to work. I had to, I had to do this. I had to do that. I esteem thy word more important than my necessary food. You see, I think that comes out of that kind of statement falls from the lips of someone who is spiritually established. You won't find that from some anemic, shallow believer. It comes from somebody who knows that when I go out and try to live my life on my own, and by the way, that's what that is. Living your life on your own is simply not depending on any spiritual provisions. The Word of God, reading it, meditating on it, time in prayer, dependence upon the Lord to intervene in your behalf, and the fellowship of other believers. That's going it on your own. When people miss the fellowship of the church, they're going on their own. They think they can make it. They think that it'll be okay. They think they can just miss a service or two and it won't matter. What they don't understand, that's all it overtakes. It's just like an alcoholic. He thinks if he takes one drink, it'll be okay. I've been off of it for 25 years, but I can drink one drink and it won't hurt me. In two weeks, he'll be an alcoholic all over again. It doesn't work that way. 
we forget that we're in the flesh, but we're supposed to produce fruit. And that fruit is not supposed to be fleshly. Galatians chapter 5 makes that very clear. The works of the flesh as it lists them. And then it goes down from that. By the way, the works of the flesh is what we can do. Oh, we can do all that. Man, we can do that without even trying. But he comes to the section about the fruit of the Spirit. And it is the fruit of the Spirit worked in and through your life. You're simply the display case. The Holy Spirit's doing the work of producing it, but the ground has to be right for it to be produced. Are you loving? Are you kind? Are you meek? Are you all the things that are the fruit of the Spirit? The fact of the matter is, the Holy Spirit's faithful. He'll produce them if the ground is acceptable. If the person is cooperating, if he is a cooperative person, then the fruit of the Spirit can be produced in their life. And it's interesting that even the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, indicates from the verses just under the fruit of the Spirit text, would tell you that it also has to be born out of a holiness. Because he talks about the lust and the affections of the flesh there. That's what disrupts the growth process in the Christian's life. When those things get in there, they disrupt the whole matter. By the way, that's not only the way, of, an, an indication of the need of spiritual growth and a way we can grow spiritually and a way we can produce fruit, but there's another one. And this one's found back over in John chapter 4 in that story about the Samaritan woman. In chapter 4 of uh, John, in verse number 34, listen to these few verses. John four thirty-four. Jesus said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Too many Christians are caught up in their work and we put his work aside, you know, for our work. Our work, the thing I'm doing, this is my work. Well, it's his work that we ought to be concentrating on and focusing on. Verse 35, say not ye, there are yet four months, then cometh harvest. By the way, that's what we would say about our work. That's when we are farming, that's what we would technically say and that's what the farmers there would say. The Lord Jesus said, that's not the way it is with my work, with the Father's will, with the Father's work, with the Father's commission. He says, behold, I say unto you, you lift up your eyes right this very moment, and you look on the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. Verse 36, and he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth, another reapeth. I send you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor, other men labored, and ye are entered into their labor. Several things in the text, quickly. In verse number 35, Christ is saying that these fields of fruit for the harvest of souls being saved, finding Christ as Savior, already are white unto harvest. That means there's some folks out there right now who are ready, willing, and waiting for someone to pop the question concerning their relationship to Christ, and they would listen, and I believe they would respond. Secondly, in verse number 36, Christ said that gathering the fruit is of eternal consequence. It's an eternal issue. It's not just a right here, right now issue. It's an eternal consequence. In verse number 36, He that reapeth, receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. That's an eternal issue. Then he says in verse number 38, and this I like, Christ says in effect in verse number 38 that there are people walking around in this world with the seed of the gospel already sown in them. You see it in verse number 38? I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. You didn't plant the seed. You didn't share the track. You didn't make an invitation to come to Christ. Somebody else did. And in their heart of hearts, this seed lies there, maybe in a dormant stage, but it's there. 
What I want you to do is it where he's saying, I want you to go pop a question and get their thinking back on that presentation of the gospel they heard and that they may come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may I say, there's still room for that kind of fruit to be produced today. I do not doubt for a moment, and as a pastor of the church, I can attest to it, that it is harder, much more difficult these days to lead someone to faith in Christ than it was when I got into the ministry many, many years ago. I can remember people showing up at my office door, coming into my office, asking to be shown how to be saved off the street of our city. I can recall people who contacted me by phone and said, Would you come over? I, my heart's convicted of my sin. I want to trust Christ to save. And yes, I'd go over. And I led them to faith in Christ. I don't get calls like that anymore. I don't get people walk off the street. Does that mean people are not lost? Oh, no, no. It's not that. It's that people have been given, as it were, a sedative, spiritually speaking. And they don't perceive the need that is in actuality killing them. We talk about felt needs. You know, if Pastor Henry would get up and preach on felt needs, then we'd just pack a church. Yeah, you could probably do that. I don't doubt that for a minute. But they forget the greatest need is not always that which they feel. It is a need which our Lord has declared. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's man's greatest need is to see himself or herself a sinner in need of a Savior. I say it to you and I say it again and again and I'll keep saying it. The more this world knows about Jesus Christ, the less they like him. Because when they come to understand him as more than a healer of sickness and a, a person who heals the blind eyes and raises up the dead, when you get into the territory of him being the Savior who died on the cross for our sins, as an incident in the city of Franklin just a few days ago when a man said, Listen, preacher, I am not a sinner. I am not a sinner. And I asked him a simple question. I said, Who told you that? He said, Who told me what? I said, Who told you you're not a sinner? Well, I just know I'm not. I said, then you got false information. There's a God in heaven who knows the number of hair on your head and the number of beats of your heart and who already knows the day you will die, who said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In essence, all are sinners. And that includes you, my friend. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I said, do you believe any of the Bible? Oh, yeah, I believe. I said, then you'll have to believe that because that's a part of it. Oh, no, I don't. I don't believe that. I believe there are things that are outdated and old-fashioned and some of that stuff. That, that's not new. I said, so you're saying if it's new, it's real. If it's old, it's not true. Is that right? He said, yes. I said, how old are you? He said, no, nah, don't pull that on me now. I said, so you're not real. You're not true because you're you're fifty old. You're over fifty, aren't you? Well, yeah. Well, then you're you're too old. You don't real. You're not real. You're not a real person. I'm just standing here talking to a phantom. You're not real because anything old is not real. And what you said? Well, I was talking about the Bible. Well, that's interesting. You just pull the Bible out of the air and say, according to the Bible, or at least uh, relating to the Bible, if it's old, it's not true. That's what you're saying. I said, let me tell you this to you, my friend. That's, a, that's very illogical thinking, even outside the realm of spirituality. God has spoken, and he's spoken for your good. And he said, man is a sinner. He needs a Savior. And not only that, but he provided one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, listen, before you say another word, Jesus Christ died for you because God the Father loved you. Now, you can thumb your nose at that, and you can deny you believe it, and you can spit on the earth from which I walk. But let me tell you something. One day, someday, and maybe soon, you'll meet him. You'll face him. And I'll guarantee you one thing. Just the fact that you didn't believe the Bible because it was old is not going to make a great deal of difference with him. 
he's going to say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. So I'm saying to you, knowing Jesus Christ is the most important thing. I say this to you. It doesn't mean, though, that I shouldn't keep telling people, anybody and everybody who will listen, that Christ died for them just because somebody won't receive it. And I encourage you today to make sure that's part of the fruit of your life. I remind myself often of this. I remind you today. James has written in chapter number 2 and verse 17 and again in verse number 26. He says, Faith without works is dead, as the body without the spirit is dead. And that's true. It's not a book that says you have to work your way to heaven. That's not what the book of James is about. But what it is saying is that faith alone saves. James testifies to that. But a faith that saves is never alone. It always produces fruit. And may I say to you, there's got to be a fruit, a spiritual fruit being produced in your life. And and that's a way to encourage you to say, I I see God using my life and working in my life and, and I see Him doing something. That's the fruit He's looking for. And it won't always be the same. It won't be the same as anybody else. There's nobody you can look to and say, well, how's my life match up to their life? That's not the way God works business. His kids are all different. And all of their lives, He works in them differently using the same Word of God. It's important, though, for you not to dismiss or excuse yourself from producing spiritual fruit. And He has provided everything we need to do it. Paul's case, Romans chapter 1, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by my mutual, by the mutual faith both you and me. And now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purposed to come unto you, but was led hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. This morning I wonder about you first and foremost. Are you certain and sure that if you died in a pew where you sit, you'd go to heaven? Two, can you say without any doubt whatsoever that you are being a spiritual assistance, spiritual aid to other believers? Are other people better off spiritually because you know them or you come in touch with them? And thirdly, in this very regard, is your Christian life producing spiritual fruit? If someone walked up to you and said, Would you mind telling me uh, what your Christian life has produced as far as spiritual fruit is concerned? What would you name? What would you say? What would you say is the spiritual fruits that you can identify that have been produced through you and your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ that the Bible would call spiritual fruit? Could you think of some things? You see, you ought to be able to say, yes, this and this and this and this, I believe, was only possible by virtue of the Holy Spirit's work in my life through me to them. And and the Holy Spirit is the one who produced this fruit and worked in this circumstance. It ought to be that true with all of us. And I say this to you this morning. I believe that's why it's important for every member of the New Life Baptist Church to be a fruit-producing believer. And first and foremost, that means for you to know for sure that if you died where you sit, you'd go to heaven. You know that beyond any doubt. There's no question about it. You're sure and absolute and have a Bible basis for it. Two, it would mean that you're in God's Word every day so that you're spiritually fed and you're spiritually growing and maturing. Stunted trees do not produce fruit. They just won't. 
You have loved ones you want to see come to faith in Christ. First thing I would do is say, Lord, am I stunted in my Christian life? I mean, if I've got friends that are close to me that I'm not reaching here, is there something stunted about my fruit crop? I mean, am I not producing the right atmosphere in which they can talk about this or I can bring it up and, and feel comfortable? What's going on here? Then thirdly, is it a matter with you that there is a sense in which not only do you reach out to other people, but their sense of reaching out and affecting your life? Are you close enough to people that there's a two-way street of you being spiritually helped as you help others? Or do you feel like it's just a one-way deal here? I'm not getting anything out of this. I don't mean to say it, and I certainly never say it, that we're supposed to be selfishly pursuing of that. But I am saying it ought to be a result of your communication, Bible truth, wherever it is. May God add His blessing to His Word. Our Father, bless Your Word. <coughs> Excuse me. Bring forth these, the fruit in this hour that You've ordained. And I pray, Father, that You might speak to our hearts very much about these matters. These are important, serious issues, especially as they relate to the Christian life in general. And right here, right now, I pray for people who may not know Christ as Savior. They may have come here without Christ, may have even come here believing they were a believer, and you've brought to their attention that they are not under your Spirit's direction and conviction. I pray for them that they may this morning walk down this aisle and allow someone to show them from the Bible how they can be born again. I pray for believers here this morning that first and foremost we would be sure we're saved, have absolute Bible basis for that. And then, Father, that we would be eager to share with others, to advance them in their Christian walk, to be a help to them. And in the process, there'd be a mutual comforting, a encouraging, a consoling, a challenging that would come our way that would make us more like Thee. And then I would pray, too, that every one of us in this room could testify to the fact that there are spiritual fruit that's being produced in our lives. Remind us often that it is faith alone that saves, but remind us that a faith that saves is not alone. It shows itself and reflects itself in fruit produced, works done. And Father, I pray that you would challenge us not to sit and not, as it were, stalemate and not become stunted but rather that we would rise up and say, Lord, what fruit do you want to produce through my life? And that we would cooperate. And that certainly for all of us, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 would be produced. That's a given. But also that there would be people who out there somewhere have already maybe even heard the gospel, but have not responded to it. And yet they'll cross our path. I pray that we might be eager and ready and waiting to share with them the Lord Jesus Christ afresh. And even though the seed has been planted in the past, it might be reactivated, as it were. And the opportunity might be ours to lead them to faith in Christ. I pray then, too, Father, that you'll bring forth fruit that you've ordained for this hour. And I pray that you'll stir the saints in this place. Help us to rise higher, grow stronger, and be more of what we ought to be. Help us to read your word daily. No excuses and no exceptions. Help us to digest it, to take it into our life and our heart, our homes. And help our homes and our lives to reflect the difference that knowing Christ and obeying His Word has made. So work in our lives for the moments we wait upon you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand please? 282. We sing the first stanza. If God has spoken to your heart, we invite you to come. First and foremost, if you've never trusted Christ as personal Savior, this is an excellent opportunity for you to do so. 
If you do know Christ, then consider these things we've talked about this morning. And may the Holy Spirit apply them to your heart and your life. And may you act upon them according to His will. As we sing, 282, verse number 1. Together, please. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you very much for your time and your attention. And thank the Lord for your safety in getting here. And I hope you will have the same safety getting home. And please be careful, but do join us for the evening service if you can. 6 o'clock for the service, 545. We'll meet the baptismal candidates and 530 for choir practice. Please pray for the service. Brother Mike will be speaking tonight. Let us pray and you'll be dismissed. Our Father, bless this now. Uh, the truths we've heard, the morning hour and the Sunday school, this the worship service. And bless, uh, pray the afternoon as we think on these things. May we come to a conformity to Christ because of obedience to his word. Thank you for the safety you've given our people getting in here this morning, and I ask you now, please give them safety as they return to their homes. Bless Brother Mike as he makes final preparation for the evening service. Use him in a wonderful way to challenge our hearts, and may we grow in grace and knowledge of you as we assemble here again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed. Amen.